0: chapter fifteen a history of california the american period by robert glass cleland this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter fifteen the bear flag revolt prior to the mexican war the american residents of california were divided into two distinct classes in monterey and other coast ports and in the interior around los angeles were many American merchants and some landholders who had become closely identified through business relations, friendship, or even marriage with prominent California families. Many of these Americans, indeed, had become naturalized Mexican citizens. Such men might regard the Californian as inefficient in government and neglectful of great economic opportunities, but they neither despised him as an individual nor feared him as a ruler and if independence were to be sought they preferred to make common cause with him against mexico rather than to treat him as an enemy the other class of american settlers however were of a very different mind coming to california from the frontier states of the west and southwest they brought with them an instinctive prejudice against everything of spanish origin a prejudice somewhat older than american independence born of all sorts of influences of racial differences, of conflicting territorial claims, of bitter religious animosities, of border conflicts, of historical tradition, of contempt and hatred which had their origin, perchance, as far back as the days of Drake and Hawkins when English freebooters looted the Spanish treasure ships and when English sailors died of nameless tortures in Spanish jails. This attitude was particularly characteristic of the settlers of the Sacramento Valley forming almost a community by themselves and having but little contact with the native californians they were restive under mexican authority and over anxious to assert their anglo-saxon superiority among them too were the bitter memories of the recent atrocities of mexican troops in texas memories which even today the lapse of nearly a hundred years has scarcely effaced from the border states consequently with all the self-assurance of the american settlers along the sacramento there was intermingled a deep-seated fear of the fate that might await them if the california officials through treachery or surprise should get the foreigners of the province completely under their control indeed while the californians as a whole never dreamed of resorting to such harsh measures to hold the americans in check some color was given to this fear by a few isolated instances more than one fur trader like smith and the patties in the preceding decade had been unpleasantly dealt with on the ground that he had violated some provision of Mexican law. More recently still, a very considerable body of foreigners had been brutally seized and sent to Mexico by the California authorities. The details of this incident, commonly spoken of as the Graham Affair, were briefly as follows. In the spring of 1840, rumor got abroad that a number of foreigners, American trappers chiefly, with some English citizens of rather undesirable reputation, were planning a movement for independence. These men were in California without passports, contrary to Mexican law, but they might have stayed on unmolested, as did many another foreigner in violation of the same law, if they had not made themselves obnoxious to the local officials. Typical of the lot was Isaac Graham, the Tennessee trapper, whose name has already appeared in these pages in another connection. Like many another American of his calling, Graham had little regard for the dignity of California law and probably less respect for those empowered to administer it. He had also intermeddled with local politics and acquired considerable fame for his participation in the revolution of 1836. His attitude had subsequently become so domineering that Alvarado and Castro, whom he had supported in the revolution, were determined to get rid of him and his kind by any means at their command. Accordingly, one night when Graham was asleep, a company of soldiers under Castro's orders surrounded his cabin, and when he appeared in the doorway, fired point-blank at the startled American. Luckily for Graham, none of those shots took effect, though his shirt was burned by the powder in a number of places. He was then unceremoniously seized and carried off to jail. In a similar manner, about a hundred other foreigners were arrested in various parts of California and thrown into prison. After a farcical trial, some 40 of the prisoners were then placed in irons and shipped down the coast to San Blas, suffering severely on the voyage from harsh treatment and because of insufficiency of food, water, and fresh air. Upon reaching Tepec, they were kept in confinement while our case was being disposed of in Mexico City. Here the pressure of the British and American governments was effectually exerted to secure their release and Graham and many of his companions were returned to California at Mexican expense. In addition, nearly all the victims of the affair filed large claims against the Mexican government for their illegal arrest and harsh treatment. While this episode undoubtedly left some bitter memories and created an uneasy fear among the foreign residents of California, it was not at all in keeping with the general attitude of California officials toward American settlers. Some measures, it is true, were tentatively proposed to restrict the overland immigration, but these nearly all originated in Mexico and found expression only in high-sounding proclamations or in decrees that the Californians would not or could not enforce. In fact, the only proposals of any consequence that might have exerted serious influence upon the status of the foreigners were a recommendation by Vallejo and Castro to purchase New Elvisha from Sutter, and a plan of the Mexican government to send an expedition into California to keep the activities of foreigners confined to proper bounds. The possession of Sutter's Fort, because of its strategic location, would have given the Californians an important check on overland immigration and an effective control of the foreign settlers in the Sacramento Valley. Similarly, a well equipped, properly disciplined force of Mexican troops, if such a thing existed, might easily have dampened revolutionary ardor among the Americans, or at least kept it from blazing forth into action. Neither of these measures, however, brought forth any practical results. The proposal to purchase New Helvetia was buried somewhere in the vast graveyard of the Mexican archives, and though an expedition was actually gotten underway by the central government to save California, it broke down before leaving Mexico under endless charges of corruption and mismanagement and the vagabond troops, of which it was composed, who would have been an aggravation instead of help had they reached their destination, found ready employment under the standard of revolt which Paredes was just then raising against Herrera. The Californians themselves, like the home government, made no practical efforts to check the growth of foreign domination. Juntas were held, and wordy proclamations issued without number, but the frontiers remained unguarded, and the settlers, after the Graham episode, did almost as they pleased. Naturally, however, the assumption of superiority on the part of the foreigners was resented by the California aristocracy. Thus, Guerrero evidently voiced a common sentiment when he wrote Castro early in 1846 that the Americans apparently held the idea that because God made the world and them also, that what there was in the world belonged to them as sons of God. And Castro, probably in some heat, Declared before an assembly at Monterey, quote, these Americans are so contriving that some day they will build ladders to touch the sky, and once in the heavens, they will change the whole face of the universe and even the color of the stars. Unquote. Yet neither Guerrero nor Castro nor anyone else put forth a definite effort to prevent the Americans from changing the destiny of California. As has been said, the sovereignty of Mexico over California as everyone but the mexicans saw was at an end by eighteen forty six she could no longer command the loyalty of her subjects there by force nor hold it by affection at the same time polk's second plan of acquiring california through the initiative of native uprising or a peaceful separation from mexico had before it every prospect of success at this juncture occurred the bear flag revolt this movement though sometimes spoken of as a turning point in california destiny was actually shorn of much of its importance by the outbreak of the mexican war tradition however has given it a significance which cannot be ignored to the popular mind at least it will probably always stand as the very embodiment of pioneer spirit and the decisive stroke by which california was saved to the united states The first participants in the revolt consisted of a handful of landholders in the Sacramento Valley and a somewhat larger number of hunters and trappers from the same region. Less than 35 men took part in the initial phase of the movement, but back of these, lending them something more than moral support, stood John C. Fremont and the members of his well-armed exploring expedition. Even at this late date, however, it is impossible to say just what relations Fremont and his command sustained to the actual revolt. The question is probably the most hotly debated point in California history, nor is anything like unanimous agreement upon it ever likely to be attained. The facts, as nearly as can be determined, are these. In the spring of 1845, Fremont, with a party of 62 men, six of whom were Delaware Indians, started from St. Louis on a third exploring expedition beyond the Rocky Mountains. The ostensible object of this undertaking was to discover the most feasible route from the Mississippi to the Pacific. But coupled with his purpose was an ever-growing desire on Fremont's part to revisit California and to examine in more detail a country over which he had already become an ardent enthusiast. The party reached Walker's Lake when winter was already at hand, food was none too plentiful and the danger of becoming snowbound in the sierras led to a division of the company fifteen men under fremont sent out to cross the mountains to sutter's the main body of the expedition under command of joseph walker skirted the mountains southward intending to cross from owen's valley into the san joaquin through walker pass it was understood that the two parties should come together again as soon as fremont could procure supplies from sutter's establishment and make his way to the southern end of the San Joaquin. The rendezvous was fixed at a stream known to the explorers as the River of the Lake. Crossing the Sierras without noteworthy incident, Fremont secured the needed supplies from the obliging sutter, and then hurried on to the appointed meeting place with the company under Walker. Reaching the banks of the King's River, which he took to be the stream agreed upon as the meeting place, and finding no signs of the other party, fremont waited several days vainly hoping for walker's appearance and then retraced his way to sutter's leaving his men here with instructions to proceed later to yerba buena fremont accompanied leidesdorf the united states vice consul, to yerba buena and monterey at monterey he was entertained by larkin from whom he learned much concerning the conditions in california on the twenty ninth of january while fremont was still at monterey prefect manuel castro pointedly inquired of larkin what american soldiers were doing in the province without permission from the california officials footnote in his note castro referred only to the members of fremont's company which by this time was encamped at yerba buena and made no reference to the larger party under walker whose presence in the province was as yet unknown to the californians in footnote. Fremont replied to castro's communication in a frank conciliatory manner explaining that his expedition was purely scientific in its character and that most of his men had been left in the unsettled interior of the province while he and a few companions had come to monterey merely to purchase badly needed supplies for a continuation of their explorations to oregon these assurances which were afterwards reiterated to alvarado quieted temporarily at least the uneasiness of the californians and they accordingly gave fremont permission to winter in the province provided he kept his men away from the coast settlements while fremont was thus occupying his time at monterey walker and his command were encamped on the kern river many miles south of the king's wondering what had become of their lost commander and the provisions he had gone in search of when the two companies separated east of the sierras after three weeks of fruitless waiting walker then moved northward expecting to find fremont at sutter's fort upon reaching the calaveras river however walker learned from a chance hunter that fremont was in the santa clara valley whither he had gone from monterey intending to return to the san joaquin on another search for walker and here the two companies came together about the middle of february eighteen forty six The combined force then temporarily encamped on the Laguna Rancho, south of San Jose. After only a short stay in this locality, the party began to move leisurely toward the coast, and, after crossing the Santa Cruz Mountains by way of Los Gados, went into camp in the Salinas Valley, some twenty or twenty-five miles from Monterey. It is not certain what course Fremont intended to pursue from this point onward, There is some reason to believe that he planned to travel down the coast to Santa Barbara, or perhaps spend a few weeks, until the Oregon route should be clear of snow, in the little valley of the coast range near Salinas, which had seemed so like paradise to the half-starved immigrants of the Childs Walker party a few years before. But whatever his purpose, he seems to have had no thought that the presence of the company near Monterey would be construed as a violation of his understanding with the California officials. The Americans were surprised and then considerably angered, therefore, when peremptory orders came from the authorities at Monterey to leave the province immediately or take the consequences. Fremont, though perhaps technically in the wrong, refused to obey this blunt demand and moving his camp to the top of a nearby hill known as Hawk's Peak, prepared to resist whatever force the Californians might bring against him. The expected attack, however, did not develop. There was a good deal of bluster and the mustering of a considerable force by the californians but inasmuch as the demonstration was probably gotten up chiefly to satisfy the mexican government or to quiet the protests of the british vice-consul against the presence of the americans in california no actual hostilities took place fremont after waiting some three or four days withdrew under cover of darkness from his fortified position and started for oregon by way of the san joaquin and the sacramento while the hawk's peak affair in itself amounted to little its results were most unfortunate the distrust and antipathy of fremont's company toward the californians were greatly increased and the feelings of the latter were correspondingly ruffled and outraged among the american settlers in the sacramento also the incident created much excitement and it was persistently rumored that the government had planned to expel or seize all foreign residents in the province in this sense at least the episode was one of the most direct causes of the bear flag revolt not long after the hawk's peak episode a messenger from washington reached monterey this was lieutenant archibald h gillespie of the united states marine corps to whom reference has already been made as the bearer of a copy of buchanan's dispatch to larkin and as a confidential agent to the American government. Though Gillespie had destroyed Buchanan's letter, he had brought most of his other papers through unharmed. Among these was a packet of letters for Fremont from Senator Thomas H. Benton, Fremont's influential father-in-law. After a stay of only two days at Monterey, Gillespie hastened on to Yerba Buena, where he remained a short time with the American Vice-Consul W. A. Leidesdorf and then set out to overtake john c fremont the latter after reaching the san joaquin had moved northward at a leisurely pace reaching the klamath lake region about the middle of may here gillespie overtook the party and besides delivering to fremont the benton letters acquainted him with the nature of larkin's confidential appointment and the purposes of the polk administration so far as gillespie himself understood them it was not at all strange that the information and despatches brought by Gillespie caused a radical change in Fremont's plans. Instead of continuing his route to the Columbia, he resolved on an immediate return to California. This course was dictated by common sense and lay plainly in the line of duty. Incidentally, it coincided with Fremont's own desires. But had it been otherwise, he could scarcely have gone serenely on his way to Oregon knowing that events in which his government was vitally concerned were rapidly coming to a crisis in California, and that his presence there might change the destiny of the province. Fremont has been pretty severely handled by his critics for this abrupt return from Oregon. He himself testified that he was led to believe through certain enigmatic and obscure passages in the letters from Benton, passages written, he says, in a prearranged code, that California was in imminent danger of slipping into British hands and that the administration expected him to act on his own initiative to forestall such an eventuality. Whether Fremont was right or wrong in this interpretation of the situation is really immaterial. The true justification for his return to California lay not in what he read between the lines of Benton's letters, but in the simple fact that a trusted agent of the United States government the confidential representative of the state department and of the president himself had traveled post-haste more than five hundred miles from san francisco to oregon through a dangerous and almost unbroken wilderness to overtake the exploring party and urge its return to the mexican province unless gillespie made this journey for his health or out of mere whim or for some other ridiculous purpose fremont had no option in the matter It was his unmistakable duty to turn back to California. When Gillespie and Fremont reached the Sacramento, after a serious brush with the Klamath Indians, they encamped at the Marysville Buttes above the junction of the Feather and Sacramento Rivers. Here rumors came to them of intended hostilities by the Californians against the American residents in the valley. There may or may not have been truth in these reports, but even if the intentions of the native leaders had been unfriendly, it is doubtful, owing to the confusion in the provincial government, if they could have made any serious move against the foreign settlers. Naturally, however, the Americans viewed the situation with a good deal of concern, especially as the hostile demonstration against Fremont and Hawks Peak affair was still vividly before them. This uneasiness gave place to actual alarm when information, apparently authentic, spread through the valley that a company of two hundred and fifty californians was advancing toward the sacramento burning houses driving off cattle and destroying the grain in the face of this supposed danger the scattered settlers of the valley hastily came together to effect a military organization the natural rendezvous was fremont's camp where sixty or more well-disciplined men already furnished the nucleus for an effective resistance against any force the californians might have at their command The position of Fremont in this emergency was surrounded by some embarrassment, having learned probably as much as Gillespie himself knew of the plans of the administration, and believing that California must be secured as quickly as possible to prevent its seizure by Great Britain, for, in spite of much argument to the contrary, Fremont was evidently sincere in this conviction, the American commander faced a difficult problem. If he took an active part in organizing a settler's revolt, he would not only lend the uprising the official sanction of the United States government, but would also lay himself open to severe censure and perhaps punishment in case the administration later disavowed the movement. The other horn of the dilemma was equally serious. If the revolt collapsed because Fremont failed to support it and the American settlers should be killed or driven out of the province, a fate Fremont evidently feared for them, not only would the blame for this rest upon his shoulders, but also the greater reproach, as he saw it, of standing irresolutely by while California passed out of the reach of the United States into the waiting hands of England. Fremont's course in the emergency has been the object of both unreasonable criticism and of exaggerated praise. He did not save California by his presence in the Sacramento, nor did he take an active part in the first stages of the bear-flag movement, but he did make the latter possible by giving it his moral support and by secret promises of aid if his assistance should be required. How far he was actually responsible for fomenting the revolt is one of those disputed points on which there is no possibility of agreement. Putting all partisanship aside, and acknowledging that personal ambition probably played its part, The fair-minded historian must still acknowledge that Fremont, viewing the situation in the light of what he knew of California conditions and believing that President Polk had determined upon the acquisition of California, pursued a perfectly natural and not altogether blameworthy course. Unfortunately, claims later made on his behalf were far beyond his actual performances, and his reputation suffered much in consequence." The first hostile act of the Bear Flag uprising was the seizure of a band of horses which were being driven from Sonoma to the Santa Clara Valley for the use of General Castro. Rumor reached the Americans at Fremont's camp that these animals were to be employed in the threatened expedition against the settlers of the Sacramento. Encouraged doubtless by Fremont, about a dozen men under the leadership of Ezekiel Merritt started out to intercept the drove. They succeeded, without the slightest difficulty, in surprising the small guard under Francisco Arsa, and took from them the greater part of the horses. These they brought back to Fremont's headquarters, which, in the meantime, had been moved farther down the Sacramento. No blood was shed in this encounter, nor were the Californians aware that anything more serious than a robbery had taken place. The next step was of more significance. Encouraged by their success against ARSA and realizing that they had already gone too far for halfway measures, Merritt's company turned their attention to the capture of Sonoma. Originally established to check the Russian advance, this settlement, with the exception of New Helvetia, which was only nominally under California control, had become the leading political and military center of the province north of Monterey. Sonoma's chief claim to importance arose from the fact that it was home of Mariano G. Vallejo, in many respects the most dominant figure among the Californians. Toward Americans, Vallejo had always shown the kindliest feeling and was already pretty thoroughly committed to Larkin's plan of independence. Under these circumstances, Vallejo and his fellow townsmen were naturally not anticipating any trouble with their American neighbors in the Sacramento. It was with the utmost surprise, therefore, that the general and his family awoke about dawn on the quiet Sunday of June 14th to find themselves surrounded by a band of thirty-three armed men, dressed for the most part in trapper's garb, and evidently come on hostile business. At first, Vallejo had considerable difficulty in finding out what the Americans wanted, but through an interpreter he soon learned that they had come to make him prisoner and take possession of the town the leaders of the attacking force merritt semple and william knight undertook to explain to vallejo the purpose of the uprising and to arrange the terms of his capitulation the conference held in the prisoner's house made such slow progress that the rank and file of the company outside grew impatient and deposed merritt from command electing john grigsby in his stead the new leader made no faster headway than the old and William B. Ide was accordingly sent in to speed up the negotiations. When the latter entered the room, he says he found most of the conferees too far gone for business. Viejo's wine and aguardiente, taken on empty stomachs, had proved almost too much for the American commissioners. At last, however, the articles of capitulation were completed and signed. General Viejo, his brother Captain Salvador Viejo, and Colonel Victor Prudon, were sent as prisoners of war to fremont's camp under positive assurance that no harm should come to them or to their property in the meanwhile Ide was elected captain of the company in the place of grigsby who seems to have become somewhat alarmed at the progress the movement was taking under his leadership and the republic of california was soon brought into being as a first step in the creation of the new government William Todd, an enthusiastic member of the Revolution, designed the flag. This was made from a piece of unbleached cotton cloth, five feet long and three feet wide. In the upper left-hand corner, a five-pointed star was roughly painted with red ink. While facing this stood the crude figure of a grizzly bear, which gave both the flag and its republic its familiar name. A strip of red flannel on the lower edge of the cotton and the words California Republic done in red, completed the design. When the flag had been completed, Ide prepared a proclamation in which he set forth a justification and purposes of the revolution. The next move was to organize a government. Nothing much could be done as yet in this direction, but a general statement of principles of the movement was drawn up, which Ide evidently thought might serve as the basis for a more elaborate constitution later on. So far, the uprising had proceeded without bloodshed. But a few days after the taking of Sonoma, two Americans, Cowie and Fowler, were captured by a band of Californians and unceremoniously put to death. Whether this was the act of an individual or the result of official orders cannot be determined with certainty. Footnote. Responsibility for the act has been laid at the door of the notorious three-fingered jack. In footnote it led however to unfortunate reprisals in which a few of fremont's men under carson's command ambushed and shot three rather inoffensive californians as the movement progressed the force under Ide received considerable reinforcement from settlers in the sacramento and around san francisco bay fremont having resigned his commission in the united states army also openly joined the uprising thus lending to it the effective support of his highly skilled company and strengthening the idea, already nearly universal, that the United States government was behind the whole affair. The Californians, in turn, were doing their utmost to subdue the revolt. It had been necessary first for Castro and Pico to compose their differences, which in fact had already reached the stage of civil war, and then, after issuing the appropriate proclamations, without which no Californian could commence a serious undertaking, to muster the inadequate provincial forces against the American revolutionists. Castro, whose headquarters were fixed at Santa Clara, succeeded in putting an army of a 160 men into the field. These were divided into three divisions, only one of which, that led by Joaquin de la Torre, ever made contact with the Americans. This was in the nature of a surprise skirmish which occurred between Petaluma and San Rafael. In it, one of the Californians was killed by American fire. In the South, Pico, still somewhat in doubt as to the purity of Castro's motives, sent out one fervid appeal after another to his fellow citizens to rise in arms against the vile Americans. fly Mexicans, he wrote, in one of the most lurid of these proclamations, Fly, Mexicans, in all haste in pursuit of the treacherous foe. Follow him to the farthest wilderness. Punish his audacity, and in case we fail, let us form a cemetery where posterity may remember to the glory of Mexican history the heroism of her sons. Compatriots, run swiftly with me to crown your brows with the fresh laurels of unfading glory. In the fields of the north they are scattered, ready to spring to your noble foreheads." In spite of such appeals, however, both the citizenry of Los Angeles and of Santa Barbara, where Pico was then located, met the emergency with such indifference that when the governor marched north to form a junction with Castro, he had at his disposal only about a hundred men. The two California leaders, so long bitter rivals, met with a show of friendship at the peaceful ranch of Santa Margarita, near the mission of San Luis Obispo. What they might have done against the revolting Americans will always remain a matter of conjecture, for by this time the bear flag was a thing of the past. Its activities had been superseded by agencies of greater magnitude. The news of war between the United States and Mexico had at last reached California. What place should the bear flag movement have in California history? It was neither authorized by President Polk, Nor in keeping with his California policy. It put an end to Larkin's hope of a peaceful annexation, and it was unquestionably responsible for much of the ill will among the native inhabitants which later made necessary the forceful conquest of the province. It was never a general movement among the Americans in California, many of whom condemned it out of hand, but was confined to a limited area and carried out largely by trappers instead of by permanent residents it did not save california from falling into british hands nor hasten its acquisition by the united states this much the historian must now admit yet the sarcastic criticism so often passed upon the movement and those who participated in it since bancroft and royce set the fashion is entirely out of place merritt simple eyed and their companions it is true had no respect for california law and institutions and too little acquaintance with the conditions in the province. They were also in no actual danger at the hands of Castro before the seizure of Sonoma, though they had substantial reason to think that they were. They could not know the actual plans of their government for acquiring California by peaceful means, but they did know that a deep-seated conviction prevailed throughout the United States that annexation must sometime, somehow, be brought about. If, at the outset, the movement was only a local affair with no very definite purpose or plan of procedure, yet it soon gave promise of a much larger proportions. If its actual accomplishments were of little importance, this was only because the outbreak of the Mexican War made its further progress unnecessary. Had this war not come when it did, there is every reason to believe that the Bear Flag Revolt would have brought to a successful conclusion the third method of securing California. That is, by the agency of an armed uprising among the American settlers in the province. In such case, Eide or Fremont might have stood out as the creator of a new republic, the Sam Houston of the Pacific coast. End of chapter 15.